Observability software helps teams to actively monitor and debug their systems, and these tools are increasingly vital in DevOps. However, it's not uncommon for the volume of observability data to exceed the amount of actual business data. This creates two challenges, how to analyze the large stream of observability data and how to keep down the compute and storage costs for that data. Chronosphere is a popular observability platform that works by identifying the data that's actually being used to power dashboards and metrics. It then shows the cost for each segment of data and allows users to decide if a metric is worth that cost. In this way, technical teams can manage costs by dynamically adjusting which data is analyzed and stored. Martin Mao is the co-founder and CEO of Chronosphere, and he joins the podcast today to talk about the growing challenge of managing observability data and the design of Chronosphere. This episode is hosted by Lee Acheson. Lee Acheson is a software architect, author, and thought leader on cloud computing and application modernization. His best-selling book, Architecting for Scale, is an essential resource for technical teams looking to maintain high availability and manage risk in their cloud environments. Lee is the host of his podcast, Modern Digital Business, produced for people looking to build and grow their digital business. Listen at mdb.fm. Follow Lee at softwarearchitectureinsights.com and see all his content at leeatchison.com. Martin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Lee, and looking forward to our conversation today. Great, great. Well, you know, so there are a lot of observability applications out there, you know, and it's a very full field of companies and of products. Yet you focus on an aspect that is increasingly important to more and more people, and that is reducing the amount of money that they spend on observability and on monitoring. How do you do that? That's a great question. It is one component that we do focus on. And we focus on this component, uh, not just because, you know, as you mentioned, these tools are getting more expensive, there's more data being produced, but that trend actually happens at the same time as more companies adopt cloud native architecture, right? As more companies are moving to containers, you know, on a platform like Kubernetes and moving to microservices. And it's really that shift that is causing the huge generation of, of data there. Because you can imagine now we need to look and monitor every single container and every single microservice. And there are just more of those than there ever was before in the previous architectures. So because our product is actually tailored at these environments and these use cases, and these are the newer environments and architectures that the old tools just weren't really great at. Because we're targeted at these architectures and environments, that's what led us to realizing that the cost exploded. And that was one of the first problems uh, that we had to go and, and tackle. When we looked at this problem, the first thing we decided to do was try to make the unit economics cheaper. And we quickly realized that you can do that to a certain extent, but there are diminishing returns. You can only compress the data so much. And very quickly, we realized actually just going down that path and trying to make the backend more efficient and unit economically cheaper was actually not going to work. So we applied a different approach to the problem. And the approach we have is, you know, it's perhaps often a gut feel of everybody that we produce a lot of data, but how much of this is really useful? And if you ask most people in the world, if they think all of their observability data is useful, most people will say, no, I don't think it is useful. But the trick is, how do you know which sections of data is useful and which sections of data are not useful? And I think that's a really hard problem to go and solve, because if you think about 
as engineers, how you go about observing something, you go in an instrument first. So you go and think about all the possible signals that you would want to, to have eventually when you want to debug. And you have to go and instrument that in the application ahead of time before you create your dashboards, before you create your alerts, because you, you can't create those if the data does not exist, right? So it, it's very hard for engineers to really understand exactly how the data will be useful until they, they face an incident and they learn at that point in time. However, you can imagine once you do that, you never go back and re-instrument or instrument less. The, the, the pattern is always, you always add more and more data there. So the way we tackle this problem at Chronosphere is that we give engineers and, and end users the ability to understand how the data is used and assign value to it. And the way we do that is analyze, you know, is the data or does the data power a certain amount of alerts or dashboards versus if it doesn't? So, you know, you can imagine if we can detect that there's a huge section of data that is never used in any dashboard, in any alert by any user, you know, perhaps the value of that data is diminished. Or even how that data is being used. If you're only ever looking at the sum or the average of the data and never all the underlying raw data, you can imagine there's optimizations there as well. So the trick for us is to both cost account every piece of data so we can measure what the cost of all of it is and then show our end users the value of that data and allow them to make some decisions themselves on how much they want to pay for certain sections of data. And that's how we go solve the cost problem here. So it's reduce the cost of data as much as possible and then show usage and therefore importance. Correct. So in showing the, the usage and the importance of the data, then allowing the end users to make some decisions on, you know, there's no magic answer. It's about the end users making some decisions on, yes, I don't believe this section of data that's costing me, you know, for example, $10,000 a year, this, this single metric may be costing me $10,000 a year because of all the high cardinality that's on it. And it's not being used anywhere. Is that a decision I want to make where I no longer want that piece of data, right? So it's about providing all the tooling and visibility around the usage and the value of the data, and then also providing the tools to go and remedy that without having somebody to go back and re-instrument or uninstrument and redeploy their applications. So the way we do it is that you can, in the platform, go and optimize the data dynamically as opposed to having to re-instrument at all. So basically it's a remote configuration of the data collection agent that allows you to decide what type of data you're collecting, how much of it, granularity, that sort of thing. Almost. Well, we actually don't do it on the agent side. We actually do it on the, the server side. And the reason for that is an agent can only have a localized view of the data, and whereas on the server side, we have a global view of the data, right? So in some instances where you can imagine we need to go and, and calculate the sum for a section of, of users, it's much easier to do that in a centralized location. But yes, we are dynamically configuring and manipulating the stream of data on the server side, and that's how we're able to achieve a lot of these optimizations. So the philosophy is the agent generates as much data as it can, sends it to the service, and the service makes a decision about which is filtered in, which is filtered out, which is stored, which is aggregated, all that sort of stuff. That's done at the service. And the trick here is, you know, our, our pricing model is based on what data comes out of that and is stored. So we're incentivizing end users to instrument as much as they want because that's what they want to do, right? But the pricing model doesn't disincentivize them. It doesn't cost them anything to generate more data. It only costs them money if they use the valuable data and, and choose to store the data that they believe is valuable. So the incentives are generally aligned in that type of pricing model. Got it. 
Got it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You know, certainly I've spent a lot of time talking to customers about observability. And, you know, one of the things I used to hear all of the time from people is that the fear of missing out is what drives a lot of their spend in, in observability. You know, if do I need this extra data point? Well, probably not, but I don't know. And the fear of having that being the one piece of data that would have solved an availability out in six months from now that cost $10 million, the fear of that alone makes people say, I'll just add that one more piece of data, that one more piece of data, that one more piece of data. And it's a normally a very easy risk calculation of collecting a piece of data versus the risk of that being the one piece of data that's going to catch something. You know, the, you know, even if it's a very rare likelihood, the cost differential between a down application versus collecting a single point of data is huge. And so there, you know, any risk whatsoever typically goes into the side of we'll just collect data and we'll go from there. But then what I hear companies do from that point on, and let me just finish this and I got a question for you from that. What companies do from that point on, then they start looking at the aggregate cost of all the data and realize how expensive it is and say, we can't afford that. We'll start randomly, and I do mean randomly, filtering out the data. You know, we'll we'll collect data from five of our 30 hosts instead of all 30 hosts. Which five? It doesn't matter. Just pick five. And using a statistical analysis, so to speak, to make the decisions, which doesn't always work. I mean, you know, if if statistical analysis worked all the time with observability data, we would only have average data. We would never have detailed metrics because it wouldn't matter. But you know that. I know that. Hopefully our listeners know that. That doesn't work that way. And so when you lose the statistics battle, it costs you money. So it's important that you make the right smart decisions about what data to collect and what data not to collect. And it, it sounds like you know, what you're doing is you're leaving it up to the customer, which is, you know, of course, the right answer to make those decisions. What I wonder is, who is the right customer? Because the motivations to reduce cost tends to be an upper management issue while the this data point is going to be important to us, yes or no, and how much to store is usually an engineering or a QA or an ops person's decision. How do you make that correlation between those two? Yeah, that's a fantastic question there. The first thing I might address is that FUD because that, that FUD is there, that fear is there of like, maybe I need this piece of data. What we actually find in practicality in production and especially in the way that we are doing it where the raw data continues to be emitted is that because it continues to be emitted and you can dynamically change what gets through or not through to the system, what ends up happening is if in a major incident you need this piece of data, it's still being emitted and you can start storing it from that point in time in a dynamic fashion without having to redeploy any application, right? So in all practicality where where you control on the server side and you don't need to redeploy the application, actually, if there is a big incident that you need this data again, you can dynamically go and start seeing that data as you want. Now, the edge case there is there's a there was a blip for one second and we missed it. And you know, now now I won't be able to look back and see it. That is very true, but if it blips for one second, generally the system is not down at that point in time. It's automatically recovered. You don't need perhaps that piece of data anymore because it's not happening at that point in time. And perhaps the, you know, the application being down for, for a split second or for a minute didn't actually cause that much impact. So we talk to companies about the fear all the time. However, what we find in practicality is 
again, if you can dynamically switch on and off what data you store, generally in all practical nature, that problem is not there. And if the incident is really bad and it goes on for multiple minutes, you can imagine uh, you can start viewing that data again. It, it becomes unfiltered out again. So that's practically how we approach that problem. To the dynamic of, and to your point, incentives are maybe misaligned sometimes, right? The cost incentive is from upper management and perhaps from the finance department, but the goals, the KPIs for the engineering teams are to keep the application up and running. They're often at odds with each other. So for that, what we have found is you really have to make this part or this problem self-service. And, you know, I, I'd find it sort of the same as sort of, you know, your typical cloud infrastructure management costs. I think every engineer these days understands that I can't just spin up a bunch of instances and VMs and leave them there because it's costing the company money, right? Even though it may not be directly, you know, impacting my KPI in a negative way, we do find that, especially in today's economic climate, engineers do have a financial responsibility to the company. The main problem is that without the visibility, it's really hard to go do, do themselves. So the way we go solve that problem is we allow a centralized and management team to sort of define essentially quotas or budgets to individual teams or individual engineers for, hey, this is how many or how much observability resources you can have, and then allow the end users to view and manage that themselves so they know when they're going over the allocated amounts. And then also have the tooling to go fix that, right? Because you don't just want to be told you're spending too much. You want to know, okay, well, what am I spending it on? Where is the wastage? How do I go and, and fix this? And that goes back to some of the features that I mentioned earlier. And what we found is that as you sort of democratize that and self-serve that into the end user themselves, what we generally find is that engineers generally want to do the right thing. They have financial responsibility to the companies and they generally manage these things themselves. Right. And it's an example of having the data helps, right? And so engineers want to save money when they know how important it is they don't when they don't understand. And so, like you say, uh, the idea of the budgets is here's how much we can spend on observability in your area and you spend it however you want to. And that gives them the opportunity to make smarter decisions. It's that. And you can imagine the same thing of like, you know, if you get told every day that, hey, by the way, there is these 10 VMs that sit here idle. Like, do you still need these machines? In the same way, it's like, hey, it's not just the budget. It's like, hey, you have this metric that doesn't appear on a dashboard, doesn't appear in an alert. No one's ever viewed this piece of data. It's costing you, you know, $10,000 a day. Like, is that something that you want to go and remedy? And generally, if you provide sufficient information, generally a decision is pretty easy to be made there. That makes sense. Uh, you know, I, I talk a lot about MTTD and MTTR, you know, mean time to detect, mean time to re repair, but that's, those are really two metrics that go to the, the duality of observability that I like to think about. The observability does two things. One is when a problem is going on, it gives you information about what is going on within the system to make some decisions about what to change. But the other thing is when you're not looking at your system, it tells you when you should be looking at the system because there's a problem that's about to start or is just starting right now. And that those ultimately, those two areas feed into both mean time to detect and mean time to repair. And both of those are important. And I really love the thought process of if we don't need this information now, we can easily turn it on when we need it and deal with it. And that works great for the there's a problem, I want to fix the problem, give me the data to help me fix that problem. But there's still the other half of the equation, which is the 
I need something to know how the system works so it can alert me when there is a problem, the whole learning notification part of that. And that's where I think a lot of the, the mindset that I just need this one more piece of data. I need more data. I need more data. And I better not turn anything off because this one metric might be the one that sends me the alert when that sort of, of issue crops up. And I think one of the fears I, I have is just because a metrics isn't in a dashboard or isn't in a, in a notification stream or whatever, doesn't mean it's not important. It just means nobody's noticed that it might be important. And so, you know, okay, I just put out a lot of information there. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. No, no specific question other than what do you do to resolve the both ends of that observability problem? And how do you deal with the issue of data relevancy is not necessarily the same thing as data visibility? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I'd say probably two components of that are pretty important. The first part is that our systems are getting more complex these days. So one pattern I see is that, you know, when we run on a lot of containers and they're all ephemeral and there's a lot of dependencies and microservices, one trap I see is that often everyone is trying to monitor everything, every small thing that might go wrong. The whole point of this distributed architecture we have these days is generally the system is resilient to minor changes, right? If one instance of an application fails or one container fails, the system is generally resilient to it. So actually what we find is if you're tracking your top level SLAs and you're tracking like, is this like, let's say a container failed, but the question often comes to, so what? If I could detect that ahead of time, is it better potentially, but like if I design my system properly, if a single instance fails, technically the whole system should still be there. I, I still need to go remediate it later, but I don't know if I need to know every small signal. And generally there's almost too much noise and you really want to know when something goes wrong. Is it impacting the customer? Is it really having an impact on the business or not? And I think that's one way to think about, okay, maybe I do need the alerts and the dashboards on the things that matter, which are the things that are impacting my business. On everything else, not that I don't necessarily care, but I should be designing for ways in which, you know, single pieces of things uh, could potentially fail. The other thing I'd say is it is true that, you know, perhaps you don't have the perfectly crafted dashboard yet. And I, I would say that generally through an experience of debugging an incident, new dashboards and new alerts get created and new playbooks and runbooks get created, right? But that's part of the process here where, you know, even if you were not to think about, because it's, it's impossible for an engineer to think about every failure scenario ahead of time. You're going to run into some of them for the very first time. The important thing is when you do run into them, can you then learn from that experience and in the future not have the same thing? So in the future, know that this new incident and this new type of failure domain can be caught with this one particular metric here. And I now know that that is important. And perhaps I now want to start paying for that. Because the opposite side of that, and I do you know, agree with you, Lee, I'd, I'd say if things were free or very, very cheap, I'd say, yes, st store it all, right? But you know, when it comes to practicality, it's actually impossible to store all, all of the data. So I think this may be the most pragmatic way to try to sit between the lines of too much data and having it be untenable from a cost perspective. Because as you mentioned earlier, once that happens, then the other techniques like you know, only observing one out of every five hosts is, I think, a, a much worse way to go than perhaps this way of like evolving the way you value and use the data over time and changing the shape of the data for sure, but not storing and looking at everything or trying to look at everything. Because again, like pragmatically, I think it, it is a pretty hard thing to do. I kind of think of it this way is uh, 
you know, apps mature and when apps are immature, when they're brand new, they have problems. And as they mature, they get hopefully either more and more stable or more and more feature rich and hopefully both as time goes on. But that also means that as part of the maturation process of the application is the maturation process of dashboards and observability data that's needed and systemic knowledge about what happens and what types of things go wrong. And so that's run books and, and playbooks, things like that, that help you know better how to handle with all these things. So you're right, as the system matures, your overall system matures, you'll have more data and can start making smarter decisions about what data to turn on and off. But at any given point in time, with the knowledge and the information you have, you can make point in time decisions about what to monitor and what not to. And worst case scenario is you make a wrong decision and you correct it later on. And that's a level of maturity that goes along with that. But then part of it becomes, how do you store that collective knowledge? And is this a problem that you're, you and your company help solve too? Or is, do you see that as a separate issue, the knowledge base issues? And when it comes to observability specifically? It is definitely something that we are trying to help companies solve, both on the to, to the points we've covered already on the usage of particular data, right? So, you know, you can imagine the usage of data is not just for the cost purposes. We start to gain an understanding of which signals are the most critical because you can imagine on the opposite end, the ones that appear on the most amount of alerts and the most amount of dashboards correlate to these are the signals that get leveraged the most and this is perhaps the more valuable data there. So on one end, you know, there is help from that perspective. On the other side of what we're finding, this is a different trend outside of the cost one that we see in the industry is that with all of this raw data, it becomes almost overwhelming for end users to sift through this this raw data, right? Because there's so much of it, there's so many dimensions on, on the particular data. And what we often find is that engineers want to ask particular questions of a system like, hey, what are my downstream dependencies? And what are their latencies when my latency spiked? That's a very human understandable question. However, you can imagine when you try to go into an observability system and answer that, you know, you, you can imagine you may have to start to dig in quite a lot manually and start to do things like, okay, well, for my dependencies, do I need to go to my APM tooling or do I need to go to distributed tracing? And do I need to understand how to go get that view of the data that I need? And then once I know what my dependencies are, do I then need to go and understand in my human mind, okay, I talked to one service over HTTP and therefore that request is being proxied through Nginx and therefore I need to go look at my Nginx metrics in order to go and, and find out what the latency spikes are. Like all of that seems like extra tax to get around the fact that it's all raw data and you need to know a lot about the raw data to navigate it. So, you know, we're also trying to help end users navigate that in a much cleaner way because all of the data and the meaning and the knowledge uh, that you speak of is there in the data. It's just generally presented in its raw form. And we don't think that that's effective at all. We think that there's a much better way to present that data to answer the questions that I mentioned earlier in a much more straightforward way because that's really what the engineers care about. And most folks who have to operate these days you know, not historical operators. It's the developer that's writing the application. It's not an SRE. It's not a person who's been in an operations team for a long time. So they're just not used to using these tools all the time. And you can also imagine they have to understand and learn a lot of things these days about security, about observability, about CICD. It's just too much overload, I think, on the developer to become, let's say, an observability expert or know how to navigate the raw observability data. So we're also trying to help from that perspective as well. 
So what you're really talking about here is observability centralization, right? Is the the combining of all observability data into a central location and have it all available from that one location rather than from the individual sources. So you don't need to go to Nginx to get Nginx data. You go to your primary dashboard, which might have information on Nginx as well as on this and this and this and this. Part of it is definitely putting it in one location. And the second part is not even have to think about the fact that it was Nginx, right? Or how I compose that dashboard. It's about perhaps automatically extracting the meaning from the underlying raw data, which is possible because all the raw data is there, is just generally presented in its raw form. You can imagine generally you have to go create that dashboard yourself. And then at that point, you have to know that it's Nginx. And therefore, you have to go to go, okay, this is how I go query my Nginx metrics and whatnot. But yeah. It's an extension of the tracing problem, right? Tracing metrics where you collect all of this data from all these disjoint services that is meaningless until you create the path that a request takes, which is selecting the right metrics from the right places and putting it together in a different organization structure. And that's really what tracing is, but you're talking about more of a tracing plus plus where you include everything, including, you know, Nginx log files along with, you know, APM data along with infrastructure information that's relevant to that request, et cetera. But, but tying all of the data that's relevant to a particular type of thing that's going on, generalize it that way, and making it all available as independent data versus tied to a specific thing. Exactly. And I think, you know, with tracing, it's easier because the data comes from one source. Every the whole world has consolidated on open telemetry. So you know there's only one pattern and one source of data. Whereas you can imagine on metrics, they come from all type of different sources, right? So then again, you you have to put all the data into one physical location for sure. But then the extraction of the meaning is, I would say, much harder in the metrics world than it is in the tracing world. The tracing world sort of had the benefit of much better foresight and and design of one protocol and one transport layer, one client for for a lot of these data. You're right. It's a much simpler problem. With metrics, you're trying to figure out how does CPU on this core compare to network packet rate for something, some transaction somewhere. And it's like, correlating those two is what is the meaning be to correlate those two and should they be correlated or that's really a much harder problem where then it is with tracing where it's like everything is tagged and has a request and everything is magic and it all works together perfectly all the time without any problems ever <laughs> yeah i don't know about that but uh, it's definitely easier <laughs> and a more tractable problem for sure absolutely yeah i was obviously being facetious there but but absolutely so now we've touched on two types of data you know we have obviously we focused heavily on metrics we talked a little bit about tracing but there's actually a third piece of observability data that is very very important and that is logs. I love logs. I love talking about logs, not because I like looking at logs, but you know, I personally find logs to be one of the most ignored piece of observability data and hence the most wasted. You know, the vast majority of generated logs, you know, end up being completely unviewed, unexamined, and unutilized in any way, really. And yet when you think about it, You know, log entry can be a real savior, right? A single log entry can solve a problem for you. You What are your experiences with log data and how does log data fit into this overall view that you're talking about here? I would agree with you. It's definitely often forgotten, but an important source of data for sure. I think that is the case partially because I, I imagine, I don't know this for sure, but I imagine logs came first 
and then metrics, and then traces. And because it's the oldest, it probably is the most complex. There is no industry standard protocol, industry standard client. It is a messy ecosystem. And I think because of that, it is a much harder problem to go solve. And hence, a lot of projects like OpenTelemetry, for for example, probably put that last for those reasons. It's, it's the hardest piece to go solve there. And then to your point, I think it is valuable because it can provide details that metrics and distributed traces cannot and cannot provide practically. So I do think it is an important piece. I think the key for logs is, and you mentioned this earlier, there's so much of it. It's often how do you find the relevant ones, right? So for us, the key to logging is generally people don't start with logs first. You get an alert. That alert is not off of a log normally. It's off of a metric. And you start looking into it. You start looking at your dependencies. And perhaps you start looking at distributed trace data. Log data is often the last place to look at because you want the fine-grained details there. And the other data sources are really helping you narrow down the scope into which area and, and which specific section of logs. And I think that's the key there is can you use the other types to point you to the exact log messages that you're looking for. And if you can, that gives you the detail and time. If you can't, you know, you can imagine in one case, you you perhaps only know which server it ran on. Then you've got to pull up the logs for the whole server and all the applications are running on it and trying to sift through and figure out what are the relevant logs for my debug use case. Whereas perhaps in a different scenario, you know exactly the timestamp, you know exactly the container that it came from, and you know exactly the error message you're looking for. Then you can pinpoint the exact log messages you're looking for there. And I would say that that, in my mind, is key to bring logging into the flow and make it a useful data type. That makes a lot of sense. And so is it correct to say that its logs are on your roadmap? They're, they're not an integral part of the Chronosphere product right now. Is that correct? That is correct. However, I would say that what we have found is, you know, Chronosphere is a SaaS platform. So with that, companies do have to egress their data to us. Generally with log data, a lot of folks want to keep it within their networks, within their environments, because egress is, is expensive. So for us, the way we approach this now is we integrate with whichever logging product you have today, whether it's Splunk or your cloud a logging product and whatnot. And we have the ability to go from a metric or a distributed trace to the exact log messages you're looking for in that particular system, right? So you don't have to ingest the logs. You can exactly, exactly. get connected to the log. Okay, that makes exactly. sense. Exactly. So, so our trick is to connect it there so you can view the actual log messages you know, in Splunk or in whatever logging tools that you do have. But the point is it takes you to the log messages you care about in context from the rest of the flow without having to egress everything. Because for the companies that we work with, generally, you know, the egress cost alone to get the logs out makes it impractical for a lot of companies to use the SaaS solution for logs, unfortunately. You're right about that. That is one of the big issues with observability data in, in general and SaaS observability platforms, which you and I are both very familiar with in specifically, but it is a bigger problem with logs than it is with, with other types of data. Yeah, what we found on metrics and traces is that because it's highly structured and a lot of the, the fields and the texts are repeated again and again, because you can imagine the label of values are repeated again and again, you can actually get really high compression of that data on the way out. That's actually not an issue. Logs, a huge part of logs are unstructured or there's, there's fields where there's just like a stat trace there or something like that. And actually the compression of that over the wire cannot be at the same rate. So it's actually much harder, much more expensive to egress logs outside of an environment. Makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about AI. 
I don't see you talk a lot about it on, on your website, but I'm interested to know how AI fits into this because AI is becoming an important part of observability. One of the things that in general is true with AIs, and I'll be very, very, very high level, 150,000 foot view here, is AI does better with a larger learning set. The more data you have, the more relevant data you have, the better AI can be at giving you analysis of that data. And that's worked very well into the observability platform of collect more, 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 more data. The more you get more data, your AI gets much better. Everyone is happier. How does it work into your model where you're actually trying to reduce the amount of irrelevant data? Irrelevant data can be very helpful to an AI. It can also be ignored by the AI, but it can be helpful to the AI. How do you deal with those issues? Yeah, when we look at AI, it's probably two parts of the domain that I look at. The area that's more recent that everyone is, you know, going crazy over right now, the large language models and the generative AI, I think that does play a role. But I believe that role is helping the interface to the data be more conversational and English-based as opposed to, you know, PromQL-based, for example, there. And what we find when you go down that path and why perhaps you don't see much about it on our website is it seems a little bit of a novelty right now because when you apply a publicly trained model to the problem, it can be helpful in you know helping you, let's say, describe the functions of an open source query language like PromQL. What it can't do, though, is it doesn't actually understand your unique observability data. It doesn't understand what a service is in your data, what an endpoint is in your data. And because of that, it can't answer questions like, hey, what is the latency of this endpoint? It just it doesn't know how to go do that. So what we have found is it's a bit of a novelty right now. However, we do think that eventually there'll be a good use case there. The thing is you need to extrapolate the knowledge from the underlying raw data. And that goes back to what we talked about earlier, that process of automatically extrapolating as much meaning as you can from the raw data and using that metadata and that knowledge graph as the training set that's unique per company because each company is, you know, you can imagine has every company's applications are different. Every company's architecture is different. Having that be the training set per company model then enables something to be unique there. So that's our belief and that's the path that we are on on that side of things on, you know, some of the more modern hype on AI. And on the other side, which we've been talking about, I think, as an industry for a very long time, is root cause analysis. Like, can you just throw all of your raw data into machine learning and have it tell you what is the root cause? And what we found there, not just from our time here at Chronosphere, but at Uber, where we worked on this problem for many years, is that correlation is pretty easy to detect in time series data. You can imagine, you can look at the shape and correlate a bunch of them. Causation is almost impossible because the raw data doesn't give you enough information to really say that that's the causation of things. And because of that, what we found was the well, that's signal a problem noise with humans looking at data too. But it's absolutely that's also a problem with humans looking point. at data. That's why, if you think about it, with, with for a human, when they look at two graphs and they're correlated, they can't tell what the causation is by looking at the two graphs. There's some other knowledge in their mind that knows, okay, well, this has a dependency on this, or like the CPU has this weird dependency on the network saturation like there's something else there's other pieces of information that doesn't exist in the observability data to really tell you causation and you can imagine there's so many sources of that data it's almost impossible to feed all of those sources into a particular model here but what we found when you don't do that and you just try to train on the raw underlying observability data what we found was and i actually thought the results weren't bad 
the signal noise ratio of let's say automatically detecting and alerting you when something is wrong was about the high 60s, it was about 66%, 67%. And I actually thought that was pretty good for just a, a machine learning model looking at raw data with a two thirds hit rate on detecting issues. It's a lot higher than dumb filters and triggers, that, yeah. you know, which has been the historical norm up until recently, yeah. Right, and I actually thought that that was pretty good given that you know this is the state of the art with these systems. But what we found was the behavior we found when we tried to roll that out was very interesting. What we found was engineers would not accept this because you can imagine when they get woken up at 2 a.m. in the morning, if they configured the alert and the thresholds themselves, they have no one to blame but themselves or their own team. And hence, there is a lot more leniency there and there's a lot more patience of like, okay, I'll just tweak this and make it better next time. When the machine wakes you up at two in the morning and they only have a 67% signal noise ratio and hit rate, what ends up happening is the human engineers reject that and they say the machine's bad and I don't want to turn it on. So the problem is actually, I think until you get to a really high signal noise ratio, and I believe it's probably going to have to be above 90, 95%, I don't think these systems will be accepted. And the problem there is that the gap between 60 to 90 is a really long tail. And I just, I don't, I just haven't seen much progress towards that. So, you know, our approach here at Chronosphere from that learning is not necessarily replace the engineer do it automatically, but really, okay, what answers and information can we bring to the engineer to make that decision and bring to them very quickly there? So things like a correlation for sure, but not telling them this is the causation because we just, we, you know, we, we just don't know if that's the causation or not, but yeah. You're focuses putting decisions into the hands of the engineers versus telling them the answer bringing very interesting information to the engineers and allowing them to make the decision there with probably additional knowledge in their minds as opposed to just on the raw underlying data but yeah well this kind of leads into the next question and so this is at least a partial answer to the question but i think there's more to it than that but where do you see the biggest challenges in observability in the years to come. What's the biggest struggles we're going to run into in the observability space? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that the probably two to three current challenges we're facing now are going to be around for a while, I think. The first one, you know, we talked about at the beginning of the conversation today, that the trend is the cost of these things are becoming a point where they're not tenable anymore. Often, observability bills are becoming higher than our infrastructure bills. And you can imagine that's just not a trend that can continue. That, that's a trend that has to reverse for the industry. And I think that's a trend that's going to take a very long time to go and fix. So that's probably the first one I think. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to plague the industry for many years to come. And it already is now, especially in the current macroeconomic climate. I think it's extra painful. That's probably the first one. The second one I think we also talked about a little bit is how good is that experience and effectiveness of the tool for the developers because architecture is becoming more complex and we see that the effectiveness of these tools for engineers and developers are getting worse. So can we reverse that trend and really reduce your MTTR and MTTD there? You know, we talked about some about the, the cost impact onto those two things with the data, but just the effectiveness of the tools are getting worse. We're seeing stats like year on year, there are 19% more critical incidents every year as opposed to less. And that's a really worrying trend as well. Then I think that's one that the industry has to fix just as the architecture changes. I think, you know, if we were all still deploying monoliths on VMs, 
I think the tools and the APM tools that we had and were developed for that world worked just fine. However, as we transition and the problem changes, and now you have to solve the problem on containers with microservices and much more distributed architecture, that problem needs to be solved again. And then the last one I think that I think the industry is doing a pretty good job of is adopting open source standards. So now there's a lot more open source tools out there for sure, but I think the best thing for companies out there is the sort of creation of open telemetry because it does standardize the protocols, at least, of data production in this particular space and industry. And I think that's great and it's been a good start. The main, I think, challenge for that path is logs because as we just talked about, it's a much harder problem to solve than for traces where they created the open telemetry protocol or for metrics where the industry was already consolidating around one standard, which is Prometheus, right? Logs, that just isn't there. And there's, you know, for a very long time going to be many different protocols, many different client versions. And it's just, I think that's going to be a really hard problem for the open source community to go and solve. But I think it's one that the world is trending towards solving. Makes sense. Makes sense. So let's talk about how you got here. Now, you have a long and interesting journey. I mean, you mentioned Uber. We talked a little bit about working at Amazon. But why don't you, you're an Aussie by birth and by training, right? I mean, you, you went to school in, in Australia. And Correct. then you started at Microsoft. You were working on one of their first SaaS projects, weren't you? You're correct. I started working at Microsoft on Office 365, which was the online version of Office. So taking Microsoft Office, I think 2010 it was back in the day, and trying to move that to the cloud. And while it was positioned as a cloud product, I would say the software development mindset was very much of a box product still. So we did it. It happened, but not, I think, in the right way back then. I think they fixed those practices now, but yeah. Makes sense. And then you left Microsoft. I know you started having some of the same thoughts and challenges that I remember running into when I worked at HP. And that is, you know, how do you get release cycles down under the two year mark, under the 18 yeah, yeah. month mark? And, and, you know, no, this is a time we're in QA now. This is not the time you we exactly. do so and so. And if you want to make that release, it doesn't occur. And this release is going to be in 2023 or whenever it ends up being the big company mentality and certainly not the DevOps, not the, you know, sort of methodology. And I, now you struggle with that, but what you did is you left Microsoft and you moved to Amazon. Why don't you correct. talk about what happened at Amazon, what you did there? Yeah, correct. And, and it was exactly for that reason, the speed of development and they're really treating it like a box product. And I think the appeal of Amazon was different. They were doing SaaS properly. In fact, it wasn't even SaaS back then. I think it was like just the beginnings of PaaS more than anything else, right? And that they seem to be doing it in a much better way. And for me, I lucked out a mentor of mine at Microsoft actually moved over and took over a particular team. There was some, I believe some reorganizations that happened in that particular team and they were missing some technical leaders on the Windows part of the EC2 team. And he asked me whether I wanted to join that and start that journey. So it seemed like a great opportunity to work on EC2, you know, one of the core services at AWS, especially on the Windows side of things, having just come from Microsoft. So, you know, I started there from doing everything from writing driver code to make Windows work for, for the hypervisors that Amazon were running, all the way to writing sort of observability tooling around can we successfully launch Windows instances of EC2? And in fact, all instances of EC2 with the images, like there was a point in time where that wasn't guaranteed there'd be a new image and we didn't know whether that would actually 
could be successfully launched, you know, as an instance in our regions around the world. So, you know, worked on that and then eventually moved into sort of more of the management systems around EC2. So things like, I think they ended up calling the system EC2 systems manager, but sort of remote commands and, and fleet management of EC2 instances is where that ended up there. And then, so that's where you really started with your observability background. And then you took that on to Uber, which I'm sure is a whole nother set of stories, but that's where you essentially got the idea for Chronosphere. Is that correct? Correct, correct. So yeah, ended up moving to Uber, which, you know, when I joined had two co-located data centers and didn't use the cloud at all. So so that was an interesting shift coming from from Amazon and AWS for sure. And yeah, you know, we were trying to fix infrastructure issues for Uber. And one of the big ones was observability and in particular, trying to help Uber move to public cloud and use cloud native architecture like running on containers and microservices. That's when we ran into these problems ourselves. And that's what ultimately led us to creating open source tools to go solve a lot of these problems. And then ultimately that led to the creation of Chronosphere and trying to solve these problems for other companies around the world. Great. And then you started Chronosphere. So what's the history behind the name Chronosphere itself? Yeah, we had to have a name to incorporate. So so, so there was time pressure to pick a name at least. And it actually came out of just using random prefixes and suffixes. And, you know, a lot of observability data is time series based. So words that had something to do with time, like chrono, were sort of possibilities for prefixes. And then suffixes, I think we were just trying like stack or platform or things like that. And chronosphere, I would say it sounded the best out of the worst options that we had (laughs) there. And we thought we could live with it for now. We can always change it later if we wanted to. And let me just tell you now. You're never going to change it later for sure. So it's stuck. But the other thing was the SEO was good as well. So when we Googled Chronosphere, I think there was like one old reference to something, Command and Conquer. And then it was also, I I believe, a Greek death metal band. And we're like, okay, we could probably, you know, out SEO these results. So that's really what went into picking the name. And we, we always thought we'd come back and change it later. Never happened. And it is just what it is now. But, it you know, never we're, will. We're I, very I happy know with all those now. things. Yeah. Yeah, I know how those things go. Great. Thank you. I I hate to say it, but we're out of time. You know, Martin Mayo is the founder and CEO of Coronasphere, and he's been my guest today. Martin, thank you so much for joining me on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. Always great to chat with you and looking forward to the next one of these. Definitely. 